Hello, everyone, and welcome to BizLit Today, a podcast series hosted on Law.com and sponsored by Shook, Hardy, and Bacon. I'm your host, Scott Ferguson. We've all heard the song California Dreaming, but it's no dream for employers that the Golden State tends to impact wage and hour laws across the country. California has some of the nation's strictest wage and hour laws and significant employer penalties for violations. Shook National Employment Litigation and Policy Chair Bill Martucci, along with partner Carrie McAtee, discuss recent wage and hour cases and how your company can mitigate litigation to avoid a potential nightmare. Good day to everyone. I'm Bill Martucci the chair of Shook, Hardy & Bacon's National Employment Litigation and Policy Practice. We are delighted you are with us today. And we are joined by my colleague, Carrie McAtee, my fellow partner, a member of our executive committee, and truly a lawyer who has insights that are quite remarkable. Carrie, would you tell us about your practice? Sure, thanks, Bill. Well, I focus on national employment litigation compliance matters on behalf of corporate employers throughout the country, Um, like you have litigated a a broad range of claims in the employment area, including a great deal of class and collective wage and hour litigation in both California and, and other states throughout the country. Thank you, Carrie. As you know, our topic today is California Dreaming, National Employment Trends from the West Coast. And we have come to know that those trends often impact the nation at large. Carrie, any comments about that trend and how it's educated us to be ever thoughtful about the trends and ever deeper involved in connection with California litigation and California policy matters? Yeah, that, that's right. I think that we've often seen California be on the extreme end of the spectrum in terms of um, uh, different laws that apply to employers, um, various compliance requirements in California. Um, and we do see often a trend of certain of those laws being picked up in other states. So just you know, by way of example, there's the Crown Act um, that has become a more recent national trend, pay transparency, privacy rights, um, and then of course, wage and hour, which I think we'll talk about uh, more today. Very good. We have look to California and have learned so much from California over the years. And as Kerry mentions, for example, the Crown Act, creating a respectful and open world for natural hair, a California legislative act that now is the law in approximately 20 states. Just an example of California legislation that often becomes a national trend. California Privacy Rights Act that expands privacy rights in California and creates a whole new category of protection. Another example of expansive trend-setting California legislation, of course, our colleagues in the privacy and data security field are most knowledgeable in many of those issues that arise, but we often overlap in our focus on California as it impacts the nation. And pay equity and transparency, which started on the West Coast with Washington State, in California, in New York City, and it certainly opens up a whole host of questions of compliance, but also raises a whole host of questions concerning potential litigation. 
Our deep dive today is really in an area that involves California in a way in depth of regulation that touches no other area. And Carrie, would you mention what that area is? Yeah, it's definitely wage and hour law. California wage and hour law has been on the far extreme of, of the spectrum and in a couple of respects. Um, first, there's there's just many more wage and hour laws and regulations that employers must follow in California, um, additional and different than those under federal law and in many other states. Many of these laws are, are very strict and technical in, late, in nature. And then second, each alleged violation, really no matter how how minor, carries significant penalties that can be stacked. And, and that leads to a waterfall effect um, where a single violation of, of a California wage and hour law often triggers multiple penalties. So it's it's just not uncommon to see a you know, smaller technical violation that triggers a range of penalties that far, far exceed the value of any unpaid amount um, or, or actual wage loss. When we think of national employment litigation and policy matters, we often think of the discrimination issues, harassment issues, retaliation aspects. We're certainly thinking of pay transparency, the Equal Pay Act, class action issues. But what we've found in the practice is that those cases that often are the most challenging involve wage and hour issues. The other cases are challenging as well. Perhaps we should say challenging and plentiful in the sense that we know the National Labor Relations Act governs labor relations law. We know that Title VII, the Age Discrimination Employment Act, and a host of other acts govern the employment discrimination world. But wage and hour, particularly as it's evolved in California, is so impactful. Now, just to take one step back very briefly, there is the Fair Labor Standards Act, and it was passed in 1938. And it provides for a host of regulations, but they're relatively straightforward. And there tends not to be this cascade effect of penalties and other issues. So under the national law of wage and hour, the Fair Labor Standards Act, there is this discretion for states to have far more regulatory approaches if they wish. And in that regard, we know that a variety of states have come to have more regulatory provisions with respect to wage and hour. But again, there's no place quite like California. So we are going to take a deeper dive there, understanding that questions about pay, wage transparency, wage equity are ever more prevalent in our country. Carrie, what are some of those typical issues in California that really make California a leader, if you will, in terms of the nature of the claims? Well, well, California law provides employees with a variety of wage and hour claims and theories for potential recovery on a, on a class and representative basis. The, the foundational claims often fall most commonly within, within five buckets. And again, employees can recover damages and penalties for not only alleged underlying violations, but derivative penalties for the very same violations. So those foundational claims are typically uh, rounding and other theories around failure to pay for all hours worked, failure to provide compliant meal periods and rest breaks, failure to pay meal period and rest break premiums at the regular rate of pay, which we'll talk about a little bit later, failure to pay overtime, double time, and paid sick leave wages at the correct regular rate of pay, and failure to reimburse business expenses 
Um, those are sort of the, the foundational claims that provide for underlying violations, but then there are derivative penalties, waiting time penalties, wage statement penalties, um, PAGA penalties, and, and unfair business practices, which extend, essentially extend the statute of limitations to four years. Um, and so employees can recover damages and penalties, not only for those you know, five or so underlying violations, but the derivative penalties for the very same violation. Just by way of example, if, if an employee was not provided with a timely or full meal period, say just once a week over the course of a few months and, and later resigned without being paid a meal period premium, that employee would arguably be entitled to one hour of premium pay for each non-compliant meal period plus wage statement penalties, which are $50 for an initial violation, $100 for a subsequent violation, waiting time penalties, which is 30 days of pay, and PAGA penalties. Um, so you take that for just one employee, um, maybe a fairly manageable amount, but oftentimes these are, and almost always, brought on a class-wide basis where they impact um, many, many employees. And when we say typical claims, what we're referring to here, of course, is California, and the remarkable reality that so many wage and hour litigation lawsuits brought in California include these claims common, which is rather breathtaking. Now, for those who are particularly knowledgeable about the Fair Labor Standards Act, that is federal law, you may be thinking there are certain exemptions, the classic white collar exemptions, for example, and why are we speaking about these more specific claims? But even on the exemption level in California, the exemptions are defined much more strictly than they are under California law. So for example, and for the executive exemption, it's not simply the primary duty analysis, but you must spend more than 50% of your time in that actual function. But today we're actually looking at claims that are ever more specific and ever more typical in California. And Carrie's done such a fine job of explaining the foundational claims and then the derivative aspects of those claims and the penalties that come into play. Can you tell us a bit more, Carrie, as we look at the California wage and hour approach? Sure. Well, I thought it might be helpful to just highlight a couple of the foundational claims that are among the most common and also where compliance with California law can be especially challenging for employers. First, I, I wanted to just mention that, that California wage and hour litigation almost always involves allegations that the employer violated California's meal period um, or rest period rules, although the meal period claims tend to be a bit more common. The, the both meal and rest period uh, rules in California are very technical in nature in that employees must be provided with one or more uninterrupted, duty-free, unpaid 30-minute meal periods, uh, depending on the length of their shift. And the meal periods have to be taken at very precise times. Um, employees may waive meal periods, but only in very limited circumstances that often don't apply. An employee can waive a meal period if, if the employee works um, more than five hours, but less than six hours. And an employee can waive um, a second meal period if the employee works uh, more than 10 hours, less than 12 hours, and took the first meal period. So it's only in those two instances that employees can actually waive their, their uh, meal period rights under, under the law and an employer who fails to provide meal breaks under those rules must pay the employee one hour of premium pay at the employee's regular rate of pay. The, the rest break rules are, are similarly technical in nature, nature where employees must be provided with one or more uninterrupted, duty-free, paid 10-minute rest breaks, depending on the length of their shift. 
again, with the rest breaks needing to be taken at very precise times. And again, like meal breaks and an, an employer who fails to provide rest periods under the rules must pay the employee one hour of premium pay at the employee's regular rate. Um, and there's a series of, of cases over the last couple of years that have just made these particular meal and rest break compliance issues ever more challenging for employers. Gary, your statement of the rules of the road, if you will, the actual requirements of California wage and hour as it relates to meal and rest breaks is clearly stated. But let me ask you this, if it's relatively straightforward to state, why in our experience has it been so challenging for fair size employers who have the right policies in place to actually ensure that those policies and procedures are followed? And what about the software programs that might track whether certain breaks are taken or not, certain meal periods are taken or not, and how that creates not only a great number of compliance challenges, but how if those systems are off just a bit, 28 minutes as opposed to 30 minutes or a certain time frame after the sixth hour, that almost inherently there's this really tough question about, is there a class that's built into that era of compliance? Yeah. Well, I think that it, it really kind of to take us back a bit to a really important case from just over 10 years ago, the Brinker decision. Um, the Brinker decision was a, a good case for employers in that the California Supreme Court decided in that case that employers do not have an obligation to force or to ensure employees take timely and full meal periods, but simply have an obligation to provide timely and full meal periods. And so for, for many years, I, I think what, what we've seen is employers that have good policies, but frankly, um, they're not, uh, you know, it's not the days of the whistle blowing where everyone goes out on a break. Employees have a fair amount of autonomy to take meal breaks and to take rest breaks as they as they want to. Um, and and so for many years, the the many of the arguments that employers were successful in making in meal period cases is that, gosh, this can't be certified on a class-wide basis because individualized inquiries are needed to determine um, you know, whether and to what extent employees were truly provided with meal breaks versus when they just voluntarily decided not to take them or to take them late or to take them at 28 minutes instead of 30 minutes. But we have a, a trilogy of California Supreme Court cases in the last couple of years that have effectively dialed back um, the practical impact of Brinker. Brinker is still good law, um, but as, as you'll see when we talk about these cases, it's just become ever tougher for employers. The first case is the Donahue versus AMN services case. The California Supreme Court in that case in early 2021 reaffirmed the Brinker holding, but at the same time held that there is a rebuttable presumption of liability when time records show short, late, or missed meal periods, and that there's no de minimis defense for meal periods that are only slightly short or slightly late. Um, so this is the situation where we see if someone happens to take their meal period a couple of minutes late, maybe a few minutes short, the Donahue case would suggest that that creates a rebuttable presumption that the employer did not in fact provide a compliant meal period. And there's no de minimis defense. You, it, it doesn't matter that the person was only a couple of minutes short. One note on this, applying the presumption does not mean that time records showing missed, short, or late meal periods results in automatic liability, but that employers must rebut the presumption with evidence that either employees were paid premiums for non-compliant meal periods or that they were in fact provided with compliant meal periods during which they voluntarily chose to work.
In that regard, when you think about the concept of rebuttable presumption, which of course, for those of us who are lawyers, particularly lawyers comfortable in the courtroom, comfortable with various standards of proof, what's the challenge of that? And then, of this is often the case, what if our client employs not 20 people, but 20,000 people in a given location throughout California? Again, I, I think the real challenge is just, just in today's work environment that employees tend to have in most work environments a fair amount of autonomy um, when to take meal periods, when to take rest breaks. And so even for one employee, for an employer to go back and and have evidence that the person was provided with with their opportunity to take a, a meal break and they simply didn't, just very, very challenging to sort of recreate that record to show that you know, on a given day, the reason that 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 Bill took his meal break two minutes late was because he was on the phone with a friend um, and just didn't want to get off the phone quickly enough to take the break. So those those issues just become ever more challenging. And then sort of compounding that challenge is the um, the penalties that are now assessed. So in mid 2021, the California Supreme Court decided the Farah versus Lowe's Hollywood Hotel case that said meal and rest period premiums um, must be paid not at an employee's base rate of pay, but regular rate of pay, which we'll talk about here um, in a moment. And, and that that decision has um, spurred a, a lot of litigation. So an employers, many employers who have paid premiums and, and done what they thought was the right thing, but paid them at the base rate of pay are now facing wage and hour class litigation over having not paid at the regular rate of pay, which is ob you know often a very small differential between the base rate and the regular rate. And then um, again, the, the the California Supreme Court decided in May of 2022 that employers can or employees can recover waiting time and wage statement penalties for an employer's failure to pay meal and rest period premiums. So employees can recover not only the value of the premium um, in, at the regular rate of pay, but waiting time penalties and wage statement penalties. So it's a good example of just someone taking a meal period a few minutes late someone not taking a full meal period, only 20 minutes instead of 30 minutes, can compound a waterfall effect of penalties that far exceed the, out, the value of the actual premium. When we return, we will discuss these recent cases and also delve further into the cascading effects, if you will, of where these relatively minor violations become the source of a commonality for class action purposes and result in resolutions that often are well into the millions of dollars. There are major retailers, just for example, who have had cases where recurring issues have arisen. So thanks so much for sticking with us, and we'll go into a deeper dive in just a short period of time. Shook, Hardy & Bacon is a premier trial firm serving clients in the health, science, and technology sectors. We help companies resolve claims using creative solutions to complex commercial litigation matters. Shook attorneys build on decades of experience and are positioned to provide end-to-end -end litigation support. Welcome back. I'm Bill Martucci, the chair of Shook Hardy and Bacon's National Employment Litigation and Policy Practice. We're joined by my distinguished colleague, Kerry McAtee. Kerry, Let's focus on the regular rate, and then we'll do a bit more of a deeper dive with respect to California case law as we continue to focus on California dreaming and particularly the impact of California wage and hour laws. Thanks, Bill. 
Before the break, we talked about one of the most common foundational claims we tend to see in the California wage and hour litigation involving meal period and rest break compliance. I think the, the second uh, foundational claim that, that we wanted to highlight today is around the regular rate, um, which is ever complicated for employers to do and to do correctly in California. As we mentioned before the break, that um, there's a lot of litigation right now, class litigation in California over employers' failure to pay meal and rest break premiums at the regular rate of pay. So employers who, frankly, were, were doing the right thing or thought they were doing the right thing by paying meal and rest break premiums, um, you know, some are now being accused of having paid them at the wrong rate, at the base rate of pay instead of at the regular rate of pay um, for employees who also earned non-discretionary uh, pay during the same period in which they, they earned a premium. Um, and as far as the, the the regular rate of pay goes, it's a, it is a complicated analysis, but the key takeaway is that any uh, incentive paid to a non-exempt employee must be included in the employee's regular rate of pay unless it's discretionary. And so included in the regular rate of pay are not only hourly earnings, your base rate of pay, uh, shift differentials, non-discretionary bonuses, commissions, on-call pay, categories like that, um, all need to be included in the regular rate of pay. Um, and then making matters more complicated in California, there are two different methods for calculating the regular rate of pay, depending on whether the payment, the incentive payment, is a variable payment or a flat sum payment. And so just by way of example, if an employee happened to earn commissions or some other type of non-discretionary incentive pay during a work week, and was paid a meal period premium during the same work week, um, that employee would need to have a, uh, a calculation of the regular rate of pay so that the premium is paid at the regular rate of pay instead of the base rate. Now, the way we see this, this play out in litigation is that the difference between that base rate of pay and the regular rate of pay is often very modest. I mean, maybe even cents on the dollar, but the real exposure is in derivative penalties. Um, and you know the the other piece to note is that meal period and rest period premiums are not the only thing that must be paid um, at the regular rate of pay in California. Um, of course, under federal law and the law of many other states, uh, weekly overtime must be paid at the regular rate of pay. But in California, there are many more categories, um, not just weekly overtime, but also daily overtime, daily double time, uh, the meal and rest period premiums, reporting time pay, and paid sick leave. Each of those categories has to be paid at the regular rate of pay and would involve um, a calculation, either a variable payment calculation or a flat sum calculation to get that, that figure correct. Carrie, as articulate as you are in setting forth those requirements, why does a miss with respect to regular rate as it's determined in California have such meaningful impact? Yeah, I think a couple of reasons. Number one is it's it's often tends to be um, what I close to a strict liability kind of issue. Typically, um, if if in fact there is uh, pay that is unquestionably non discretionary or unquestionably falls in one of the categories that must be included in the regular rate of pay, and it's not included, it's not all that difficult to show just through regular pay records that that's the case. 
Um, it also tends to impact from what we've seen, it, it almost always impacts large groups of employees, not just one or two, sometimes entire employee populations. And then again, the, the delta in the, in the actual wage loss tends to be very modest. Um, but really, the, the meaningful drivers and the penalties, largely waiting time penalties. Um, waiting time penalties, of course, are um, up to 30 days of pay uh, for an employee. And the, the derivative theory uh, for waiting time penalties is that you know, any, any amount that should have been paid but wasn't before an employee was separated from employment, either voluntarily or involuntarily, um, no matter how minor that amount is, that employee would claim um, entitlement to waiting time penalties of 30 days of pay. Um, and if you take that to a class basis, it would be you know 30 days of pay for each class member affected by the underpayment, again, no matter how minor that might be. So we see lots of you know, common derivative theories that support claims for waiting time penalties um, often include these claims over the regular rate where there's a small differential, but meaningful penalty exposure. So even in a situation where a person, say, makes 15 or $20 an hour, let's say the off was about $8, that triggers the 30-day penalties and other aspects. It, it certainly it certainly could. I think we tend to see waiting time penalties, um, derivative waiting time penalty claims for um, any differential in the regular rate, um, as well as for you know not paying meal and rest period premiums. Another issue that I think is becoming more common is failure to pay vested vacation at the correct final rate of pay. Of course, in California, employers are required to pay out vested vacation at termination. Um, if that final rate of pay gets gets goofed up uh, in 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 the in the final payment, that's another um, another area where we're seeing a lot of waiting time derivative claims. And again, the real challenge here for employers is that miscalculation, which can happen, results essentially in strict liability with a host of penalties. And because, for example, with regular rate, it can be almost by definition an across the board issue that impacts all of one's associates or employees in California. And with the amount of turnover we typically see with large employers, you may have 10, 15, 20,000 people in that class and just to do that math with the penalties is how you get to these millions of dollars. And Carrie and I have been in situations with Fortune 500 audit committees where really the receptivity to the concepts is challenging for really bright people to understand until we lay it out and show it pictorially as well. And you see this cascading effect and it's, it's really amazing, frankly. Oh, that's that's right. And then, you know, that's just talking about waiting time penalties. There's also wage statement penalties that I mentioned earlier, which is, you know, up to four thousand dollars per employee um, and then PADA penalties, which, um, again, can be recovered for the same underlying violations. Um, and that is uh, where a, a person can sort of step into the shoes, so to speak, of, of the state of California and bring a representative action on behalf of of all aggrieved employees. Um, and seek, you know, it's t typically $100 for every employee for every pay period for the first violation and then 200 for each subsequent violation. And when you say PAGA, of course, you're referring to the Private Attorneys General Act in California, which is unto itself a California creation as it relates to wage and hour. That's right. And, you know, one other thing just to, to mention, you you asked about why it's so challenging on the regular rate for employers. I think another one is, is frankly, some of the labor shortages that we've seen and just the change in the workforce 
um, ways people are working over the last few years, I know a lot of employers um, got very creative in, in trying to uh, recruit and retain employees with various kinds of incentive programs. These were all very well intended to try to you know, attract people, pay them incentives. Um, and oftentimes, you know, we've, we've seen lots of employers with those good intentions roll out those programs, but without really appreciating that that, that alone will impact the regular rate calculation. Um, so it falls in sort of the category of no good deed goes unpunished, but I think we're seeing a kind of the wave of litigation now around some of those incentive programs that were rolled out during the pandemic and, and post-pandemic. When you step back and think of California Wage and Hour and recent cases, guidance for our national employers and multinational employers as they work in California, any other developments you want to highlight at this point? You know, I thought there's there's a number of meaningful cases over the last year, but I thought I'd, I'd highlight just a few and, and also mention a couple that are pending right now before the California Supreme Court. Um, you know, there there is a case from last year where the California Supreme Court decided an issue that I think is would be very important for any employer um, who has temporary employees and is facing California wage and hour litigation. This is the Grande versus Eisenhower Medical Center case. Um, and in that case, um, it, it, an employee, it, the, the California Supreme Court held that an employee who brings an employment class action against a staffing agency and executes a settlement agreement releasing the agency um, may bring a second class action against the staffing agency's client based on the same violations. And so I think, again, a very important case for employers who are facing wage and hour litigation to read um, and understand if, in fact, they've got a temporary workforce that might be impacted um, as part of the wage and hour litigation. Um, another case that um, this is currently before the, the California Supreme Court, but the appellate cases is very instructive. It's the Camp versus Home Depot case um, where a, a, that a California appellate court concluded that rounding is unlawful and should not be permitted in California, uh, given the advances in technology um, that have permitted employee or employers to track time worked more precisely. Um, and not surprisingly, that case relied on a bunch of California Supreme Court decisions holding that even small amounts of work time must be paid. And so the idea there is that if an employer can capture and has captured the exact amount of time that an employee has worked, the employer must pay the employee for all time worked. Such an interesting development. We know that under federal law, the Fair Labor Standards Act, that rounding is an acceptable practice. We also know that in the federal courts, when rounding has been challenged, rounding as a concept is acceptable, but the rounding in practice must essentially even out in such a way as to not be a detriment to the employee's individual wages. California, as you noted, has highlighted the recent technology and the relative ease of tracking ever more precisely the time. And so rounding is not acceptable in California. And frankly, Carrie, what advice have we been giving clients generally nationwide with respect to their rounding practices. Yeah, I really think that at, at, that the best the best practice is to pay to the punch, um, not just in California, but everywhere. I think at a minimum for employers who are rounding, they would really want to do some regular good auditing 
um, to see how that's working, but there's really no substitute for paying to the punch. This is such a fine illustration of where California's in-depth analysis from time to time really does give rise to a national trend. So the layer of legislation from California, one could be ever more selective on how that might impact other parts of the country. But the analysis with respect to rounding, just for example, is one where that really has an impact on other cases, not necessarily in a res judicata sense, but in a sense of analysis, particularly when you consider where the technology is and what may make sense in the past with respect to rounding and what may make sense in current technological abilities now. You know, one other um, case that to, to, to mention, and then I'll, I'll mention a, a case that's pending that I think will be of great interest to employers in California, but there's an, an unpublished Ninth Circuit decision from March of this year that, that highlights what I think could be a sleeper issue for many employers who pay shift differentials. We, we know many employers in manufacturing, distribution, even retail that, that pay shift differentials to, to employees working second or third shift. Um, this is the Mills versus Target case, again, an unpublished Ninth Circuit case, um, but that case considered whether or not the labor code's requirement to pay vested vacation at a final rate of pay at termination obligates employers to pay the vacation at, um, at that includes shift differentials. And the, the Ninth Circuit said, yes, the, the final rate of pay for vacation purposes must include shift differentials. Um, again, I think that is is an important issue because oftentimes the the final rate of of pay uh, vacation, including a shift differential, may not be all that different than if you didn't include the shift differential. But the real driver, of course, is in the waiting time penalties, potential wage statement penalties. Although really the waiting time penalties are are the big driver there. In that case, um, the Ninth Circuit did hold in that case that that waiting time penalties. Um, were not appropriate because the state of the law on this issue was unclear. But I think that's why this decision is so important. Um, any employers who are paying shift differentials ought to really very seriously consider making sure that those are being included in the in the vested vacation paid at termination, um, because I think otherwise waiting time penalties will be on, on the table for that issue going forward. Um, and then just to mention one one case of interest, and again, there are, are multiple pending before the California Supreme Court right now, but one I think of particular interest would be the Huerta versus CSI electrical contractors case. That, that case is going to include um, discussion and address what kind of time is compensable as hours worked in California. And of course, the definition of hours worked in California, which means time that must be paid, is broader than it is under federal law and the law of many other states. In California, hours worked and that must be paid includes all time an employee is subject to the employer's control and all time the employee is suffered or permitted to work, regardless of whether or not the employee is required to work. And the Huerta case is so interesting because it's going to be looking at whether the following items are hours worked. Number one, time spent um, on an employer's premises and a personal personal vehicle waiting to scan an identification badge, have security guards look into the vehicle and exit a security gate, or time spent on an employer's premises and a personal vehicle uh, driving between the security gate and the employee parking lots while subject to certain rules um, from the employer. There's a couple of other issues in that case too, but I think 
you know, thinking about whether or not an employee must be paid for time in an employer's parking lot um, or time kind of going through a security gate um, is is something that I understandably would would cause a lot of employers concern. So we'll be watching that case carefully. The number of issues that come to be prominent in California by virtue of the California wage and hour regulatory approach are remarkable. Just a few closing comments and then for Kerry's final guidance. We know there's the Supreme Court of the United States and there's federal law, and we will see some encouraging decisions from the federal courts throughout the United States and from the United States Supreme Court in the wage and hour area from time to time. But California can have its own approach, just as other states can. And so those trends that we see at the national level are not necessarily going to be controlling in California. So we have to be ever cognizant of that. And of course, our bigger point here is that many of these trends in California are not outliers. They really are trends that are consistent with the public policy to be ever more responsive to work time, how work time is defined, how it's paid, what's included in regular rate, how overtime is calculated. So there's much of what we've discussed that really is in that strict liability category. On the other hand, we tried a case not long ago in Los Angeles involving the administrative exemption, and that was a jury decision. And we were able to prevail with a very interesting all-female jury. And the question essentially for the jury was whether much of the work that was done by these particular individuals in this industry was, in fact, inherently discretionary, inherently required independent judgment. So there are areas where good trial presentations and discretion come into play, but the reality is the overwhelming number of issues in California give rise to a remarkably active California wage and hour practice, which attracts plaintiff's lawyers to find violations and to build in these penalties. Kerry, knowing that environment, Understanding it's trending to other parts of the country as well. We know a host of states are following certain aspects of the California approach. What guidance might we offer to those national and multinational companies who have a meaningful workforce presence in California? Well, I think a, a couple of things that, that would be most important. One would be um, understanding what policies are in place and how they are enforced and whether or not those kinds of policies and, and practices, processes need to be updated to account for some of these California developments. And then two, equally or perhaps even more importantly, would be to do a review or an audit um, of, of time and payroll records, whether on a, on a holistic basis or in a, at a minimum on a sampling basis. Um, oftentimes it's, it's been our experience that um, employers may think it's being done one way, um, you know, the regular rate is being calculated in a certain way, or maybe the employer um, doesn't necessarily understand that certain kinds of incentives are being paid. Um, and I think to do an audit of pay and, and time data to look at how that's actually being handled in reality, and frankly, to do it periodically. Um, again, one thing that that I think um, we've, we've seen is in certain kinds of companies where there may be more autonomy for managers or regional, um, uh, you know, regional directors to come up with their own kinds of programs, their own kinds of incentive programs, where perhaps, you know, the payroll group that's maybe more centralized at a corporate or enterprise level doesn't even know that incentives are being paid. They're done in a way where um, kind of right hand's not talking to left hand, and then that's how a regular rate problem can often come up. So I think auditing time and pay data, 
um, is, a, is a very good idea and frankly, to do it on a periodic basis. Well, as we conclude, special thanks to you, Carrie McAtee, for all your insights and your ability to express it in such a clear fashion. And for our listeners who may be interested, we mentioned that we have a National Employment Perspective newsletter that's quite valuable and often tracks California as well as national trends. We also have a Wage and Hour podcast called A Window into Wage and Hour. And it's easy to sign up for those matters at the shb.com website, the Shikardi and Bacon website, and you're welcome to do so. Thank you so much. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Biz Lit Today podcast series, which can be found on law.com. I'm your host, Scott Ferguson. Join us next time. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertising. The views and information discussed in this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to be any kind of legal advice.